All right, so just a little bit of an introduction, a rundown of what we're doing. Um, the four of us will be up here um, going through the questions. Um, you'll see that they all have their Bibles, and I have my phone. That's because I will be Googling answers while they are talking through Scripture. Um, not true. Really, what I'll be doing is uh, I'll be keeping track of time to make sure that we stay on track, because you get the four of us up here, give us a lot of big theological questions, and it could go on for hours. So trying to keep us on track, trying to be uh, conscious of our time, trying to make sure that we hit all the questions that came through this week um, and the last week. And uh, each person will kind of take a question and have a little bit of a lead to kind of get the ball rolling on ideas behind that topic, and then the other three of us will jump in um, to give a little bit more perspective, a little bit more thoughts, um, because really at the end of the day, God has blessed us all with different personalities, different viewpoints, different uh, giftings, and so we want to make sure that the full representation, you know, uh, the, the wise counsel of many are involved in these answers. Um, so we've been doing that, um, and it's, it's really cool for me to know that we can walk away from here completely unified, but at the same time not completely uniform. Right? The, the application of these questions, the, the viewpoint and the perspective in which we come at it to, to get these answers are going to be a little bit different for each of us, um, but they should be, right? Because God has gifted us, each of us, differently. Um, so we'll jump right in. First question, if we can get the slide up there, is how do I, a white American, comfort and mourn with my brothers and sisters from other races? What does the scripture reveal about my heart, even though I'm not outwardly racist? I'm not marching to support the supremacy of white, but I am fallen and subject to the sins of racism. How can I offer hope? Quite a big first question. And I am elected to begin with that question. Um, let me just say this too, and a couple things. One is, this is not about us. We want to drive you back to the truth of scripture. That's where we want, want us to go this morning. Um, and so... As we share um, scripture with you this morning, share thoughts as it relates to scripture, interpretation of scripture, always the scripture like the good Bereans in the book of Acts, always go back to the scriptures yourselves. That's what we want to encourage you with this morning. And this is going to be more conversational uh, as opposed to each one of us answering each each question. We'll take turns on each question um, or, or I'll lead this one, and then someone else will lead the answer to the next question. We'll just kind of hopefully have some conversation. But as it begins with this, this first question, it's very important that we understand from the get-go that racism, bigotry, any kind of superiority at the outset is sin. It's sin. Now, let me give you some reasons why it's sin. One, it contradicts the very person and nature of Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2, and if you want to go there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 uh, through 8. Paul's writing to a church, first century church, and he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we need to understand that Christ himself, who is God the Son, did not even consider himself being God as something to hold on to. And so we need to understand that racism, any kind of superiority or bigotry, contradicts the very essence and nature and person of Christ himself. 
second reason why racism is sin. And this is not you know, an exhaustive list. These are just some things that in study of Scripture that, that I'm seeing as far as racism and sin. Second thing is it contradicts the very core of the gospel because the gospel is all about reconciliation. The gospel takes two things that are enemies and it brings them together. It's a ministry of reconciliation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that God has reconciled all things to himself through Christ. And then he gives the church this ministry of reconciliation. And so racism, superiority, bigotry of any kind, it creates division. It elevates self over someone else. Therefore, not only does it contradict the very character and person of Christ, it contradicts the very message and essence of the good news of Jesus. Because it is not seeking reconciliation. It seeks division. Another reason while racism is sin is one, another reason is it simply fails to acknowledge and treat that all people have been given life by the same creator and come from the same bloodline. A great passage on this is Acts chapter 17. And I encourage you to go there, mark it down. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 36, or 24 through 26. Paul is addressing a culture similar to our to ours today. He's addressing that culture in the first century in Athens, and he says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So racism, it it fails to acknowledge that we all come from the same bloodline, the bloodline of Adam. fails to treat people in that way. Another reason, too, is that it fails to recognize and treat people as being made in the very image of God. Genesis 1.27 speaks to that. So I just kind of wanted, we wanted to start this off, really, by just giving some solid understanding of truth of Scripture that helps us understand that in racism bigotry, superiority in any form is sinful because it contradicts the very nature and person of Christ. It contradicts the gospel of reconciliation. It fails to acknowledge and treat people as coming from the same bloodline, which from coming from the same breath given to us by God. And it fails to acknowledge people as created in the very image of God. So that's kind of our our push-off, if you will, from the dock as it relates to this question. So we're just going to kind of now engage in other thoughts as it relates to the answer. So I invite these guys to, to jump in. Well, one of the things that I would say right off the bat is that I think oftentimes people look at our current situation in the United States and we think that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to speak of that or there's not a whole lot of, a lot of guidance in terms of racism. But we see this concept of superiority of, of self over others right from the start. Within the creation account, we see this, especially we see very similar parallels where the people of Israel are, are more in that position when, it, when they're uh, in bondage. In, Israel, uh, in Egypt, and then we also see that in even Israel's own account in their history. Uh, we can see that uh, in the New Testament, and, and then also, obviously, we have that now modern day, and, and so there are a lot of applications that we can look back through. It's not like this is totally void and, and outside, outside of the wisdom of Scripture, so I think that's another thing that's really important for us to understand is that we don't need to fabricate a response. There is a response that can be found in Scripture. I think something else that I want to say here as far as racism and sin, if you go to the book of Galatians chapter 5 and you see the evidences of the flesh 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, verse 19 and following, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Those are descriptions often that are connected to racism, bigotry, and it all comes from the sinful flesh. And I think that's an important understanding that, again, racism is just an outworking of the sinfulness within mankind. Okay, so if we look at it with this concept of it being sin, I think then that when it comes to the hope part of this question is where is our hope coming from, it's the same hope that we have for any sin. What, what is the resolution for any sin? Well, first, we know it's a heart problem, mm-hmm. um, and you see that in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Um, and then also, if it's a heart problem, then we know that it's not going to be solved by sociological type changes or political changes. Um, when we think about the example of the early century church and how, um, how slavery itself was dissolved through the establishment of the congregational establishment of the church. House churches basically broke down that because of the interaction that slave owners were having with slaves and seeing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that system was pretty much dissolved through a very peaceful process, um, all through changing the hearts of men, but it had to be because of the power of the resurrection to begin with. It wasn't going to be something of us being able to politically make massive changes within a society. It has to be things that we do through the power of the resurrection. And so our hope is not going to come by being able to convince people by reason It's going to have to come through bringing people to a point of submitting to Christ and therefore being able to to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think along with that, too, what I'm learning, trying to learn, is that Facebook is not the the place to solve this problem necessarily. We see a lot of attempts at that. Even this week, like, I can scroll through Facebook and see pictures of statues being torn down and response after response after response from my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that, that the part of this question that really resonates with me is how do, we, how do we mourn with our brothers and sisters of other races? How do we make those connections? How do, we, how do we as a church step out and say, you know, hey, we love you. <laughs> like, and, and, and we're not necessarily represented by, by these people that are, that are marching in the streets by the KKK and the neo-Nazis and we're also we might not fully agree you know agree with the total other side of that and so how do we bring those sides together and 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 I the thing that really stood out to me in thinking about that was in Acts 15 you know all, all through the New Testament you've got the Jews and the Gentiles and and then there was this struggle between the new Gentile believers and how they were going to you know whether they had to be circumcised or follow all the dietary restrictions and all that well the Jerusalem Council comes together and writes them this letter, which in my mind is like they've made a post on Facebook for their friends, in, uh, right? And so here's what they said. Listen to this. The brothers, the apostles, and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And he goes on to say that basically we're sending you some help. We're sending some people in there to, to really connect with you guys and, and help, help us come together. And I see the same thing. The, the church could say today, man, like, 
we see that we've sent, like some people have gone out in our name and said some things that aren't quite right. And, and it's easy to just send a letter. It's easy to just say, to, to make a post on Facebook or to make comments lightly. But I think the example that they gave us here is, man, like they sacrificed. They sent some of their best men to go and connect with these people and live in relationship and, and learn about each other and try to make that connection. And I think that's an example for us as a church is how, how do we step across that line actually? Not just in idea and theory, but how do we make relationships with people that are different than us? And how do, you know, I mean, I think that's an important question. That, yeah. I think really the only thing I would add to any of that is, is we've covered massive concepts, but I think that a real simple way of, of how to mourn with your brother and sister is the same way you mourn with any other brother and sister. Just be with them. Ask them over your house. It, go out to eat. Be with them. I mean, I, I, there, was that, there was a lot of power in that. The only, the, there was only one church in my history that I've been involved in that was very multi-ethnic. And it was one of the coolest things to be invited into another, <clears throat> another person's home over and over and over again. And during the time that I was there, I was involved. I went to a Filipino person's house, Korean, Thai, um, Chinese. Um, I almost said Philistine. That's not right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Philippi- the Philippians, um, Galatians. No, um, no, no. Um, but uh, Indian, um, a huge Indian population. I went to a Polish guy's house, and it was just really cool to see the body of Christ say, "Okay, there are differences, but at the same time, maybe even maybe even our grandpas were you know fought in the war against each other in World War II. Like, but." We love each other. Why? Because I love you as a person, because you are my brother in Christ. Not because, and, and just ignore all the rest. Just mourn with them as people, because they are people. The one thing I'd like to add to it is, though, is we kind of talked a lot, like you said, big you. Mm-hmm. If I could give one passage for you to study, if this is something that's really on your heart, I would say you need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. And I think it's a very familiar verse for many of us, but um, I know growing up, I never looked at it through the proper lens until probably about five or six years ago when there was the discussion of race. And it's, it's the all about the many parts in one body. But as you read through that and you understand that it's, it's directed towards two primary issues within the society of the time. Race, that's the Jew and Gentile, and then also class, the slave and the free. And then when you start reading through that and understanding when it says that the eye can't say to the body that, you know, I, what was it, the foot first, right? The foot can't say that I'm not a, a hand, so therefore I'm not part of the body. And then it starts talking about the eye, and if every part was the eye, then, then how would we hear? And so we should mourn as a sense of if some other member of the body is suffering, the full body feels the suffering. But I think the other power in this is that later on it says that if we, just as part, certain parts of our body we consider we consider, which I love that part. It's not saying it is weaker. It's saying when we, see, when we consider it weaker, what does the body do? It covers it, right? And, and he talks about even clothing certain parts that are private that we don't want to be um, seen, right? And so there's this idea of one brother covering another brother. So when we see somebody, or at least we perceive them to have a position of weakness, we're supposed to cover that brother. And if I can say the one thing that I think is the biggest conviction of the American church is that we are not like the first century church in that. If you look at our churches, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. said this years ago, and I, not much has changed, the 11 o'clock hour on a Sunday morning is the most, is the most segregated 
of all times of the week. And so that's, I know that there are barriers and there are difficulties when it comes to beyond even just specifically to, to the African-American racial conflict that we have, but there's also language barriers that we might have and other cultural barriers. But the first thing that we should recognize is that if we are supposed to be taking on a position of covering the weaker brother or what we perceive to be the weaker brother, we're supposed to be the ones that take action and feel somewhat vulnerable. We take on the vulnerability rather than expecting them to. So what that might look like is what we've been kind of working toward for what we're going to do leading up to Easter. I don't know, Mark, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, remind me to. Okay, remind me to. I want to come back to that. But I I just want to make, I I think it's very important that we understand that the issue of racism, the sin of racism, is a heart issue. It's a heart problem. Jesus speaks to that in in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15. So the true change and transformation that's going to bring healing and hope through this is going to be when the heart changes, when the heart's transformed. That's why the solution to this has to be applied to the heart. That's why the only solution that will ultimately resolve this is the gospel because it's only through Christ that a heart is completely transformed. We need to get that. We need to understand that. And a great passage on that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I won't read it, but write it down and read it later. It's a very powerful illustration of, the, of how the gospel removes racial barriers. And a great evidence of that, I'll give you two, is one, the first century church, because the first century church was made up of all kinds of cultures, all kinds of races, all kinds of nationalities. I'll give you a modern day example. When we lived in Dublin, Ireland, we attended a church called Grace Fellowship Church. I remember on a Sunday morning, the pastor, Irish pastor, stood up in a city center, downtown Dublin, Ireland. And he stood up and he said, I'm just curious, how many different nationalities are represented here this morning? There probably weren't, there were probably about as many people there in that service as there are here this morning. And over 25 different nationalities were sitting there together that morning in one church gathering. Over 25. It was amazing. And why were they there? What was the one thing that brought them all together? It was Jesus. That's what brought them all together. I think that's so powerful and so important for us to understand is that the gospel works. It, it, it resolves the issue. It, it does that. That's why it's so important for us to, number one, grasp that and then to share it. And that comes back to that other point. One thing that we want to do is we're looking ahead in the future, even this year, is we want to start in integrating with other cultures, other believers, other churches of other cultures, um, whether it be a, a Korean church um, or a Hispanic church, an African-American congregation. We want as a church to, to this is not you come to, come to us. We want, to come, we want to learn. And that's something that we're talking about. How do we do that? How do we engage in that as a church family? And so we're looking to come this spring to be very practical and tangible on that because we haven't done a good job of that. We haven't opened our arms and loved that way, but we are working, we're talking about that. You could, one of our Sunday gatherings could be all of us going to a Korean service and just being there. That, that, so we wouldn't meet here, we'd go there, all right, and, and to love and, and do that. So those are some things that we're thinking about practically as it relates to what do we do tangibly as a church to help move forward in showing and displaying the gospel on this. I, just real quick, I think. Yep. The key is that it doesn't happen by accident. Right. Right. None of this happens by accident. I will always default to hang out and spend time and build relationships with people that are just like me. 
the only thing that, that I can use as a bridge is the gospel, and I could, but I have to do that intentionally, just like you're talking about as a church. We've got to do that intentionally. As individuals, I've got to do that intentionally. I've got to build relationships with people that are different mm-hmm. than me. I'm going to jump in. Sorry. I just think this is too important for us to, to just to move on. Something, too, as I've, as, as I've been thinking through this and working through this, it's confessing my own sin. We need to de- look deep down. We need to acknowledge our own racist hearts, potentially, or bigot hearts, whatever it might be, and we need to evaluate ourselves, and we need to confess that before the Lord Jesus. And some kind of superiority that maybe you sense you have deep down in your heart towards someone else, that's sin. And that's the first thing we need to do is acknowledge our own hearts and our own wickedness and confess that before the Lord. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus forgives us of that. That's what's so good about that. And just something, I think that's important. I think we begin praying for the other nations. That all those different things can help work your heart toward bringing reconciliation for yourself as well as for the church. We all have a lot of notes on these. So if you want to talk to us about it more afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> good. But uh, Kyle, do you want to? All right, yeah, just I think it's, Super important that we that last that last statement is is so key because it's not just racism, racism is just a form of bigotry. It, it's one that is is widespread and easily visible right now in the media. But it's it's bigotry at the end of the day. The, the idea that I am better than that person because fill in the blank, and, and it's and it's just there. It's the truth is it's in all of our hearts. Um, so it, but that's the the gospel. The church has always taken the outsider, the weak, the people who we look down upon, and bring them in. The, the, the widows and the orphans were, were what James described them as. But, but the alien, you know, everybody, someone who's outside, bringing them in. Uh, we're going to move on to the next question. How do we reconcile a God of love and a God of justice? And this is mine. Um, I think with this, there's a, there's a faulty assumption right from the very beginning. The idea is that love and justice are completely separate and cannot be together. That a person of love cannot be a just person, and a just person cannot be a person of love. And, and it's just not the case, right? It, it, every single one of us have things we love, and there are things that we are just towards. And, and a, a primary example of this would be children, right? A, a father loves his child dearly, but at the same time, there are consequences for actions. You see that over and over and over again. Um, I know I saw it in my life over and over again. Um, <laughs> And that should be the case, right? Um, the, the fact is that justice is an outcoming of love in a lot of ways. If, if, if a father doesn't love his child, he's going to let him do whatever heck he wants. He's going to let him go you know, play with the oven, and he'll figure it out later, sooner or later, it'll burn him, right? But, but that's not what we do. We, 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 we put parameters in our lives, and we, and we put consequences in that child's life so that they learn from that. Um, and you see that in Scripture, for instance, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, I think says it really well. That's the love passage, right? But in there, it says that love opposes wrongdoing. Love doesn't hide wrongdoing. Love isn't apathetic towards wrongdoing. Love opposes it. It gets in the way. It picks a fight with it. And I would say it doesn't ignore sure. wrongdoing, right? It doesn't, it, and that's, I think that's an important point there. I think it's a great passage that Paul gives 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I think the interesting thing about this, too, is we always talk about how God is a relational God, right? And so many times we want to pigeonhole him. We want to stick, well, God is truth, or God is love, or God is, God is, God is, right? But 
John, in John, we see that God is full of grace and truth, right? Mm. And he's full of both of them at the same time. We see that he is a full, multifaceted being who we know, and he wants to show us who he is. And so he's going to show us love. He's going to show us justice. Why? Because he is a God of love. He is a God of justice. He is a God of mercy. That's why he shows us all these different aspects of himself, and that's why we see consequences in multiple directions based upon your heart and how he's interacting with you, the goal he's bringing forward out of you right now. I think um, <clears throat> reminds me of Exodus 34, 5. Moses is on the mountain with God, and God comes, and he, he this is right after the golden calf incident, right? They had the Ten Commandments. God's given them all their law, and then they turn their back on God, and ha- they worship the golden calf, right? And then Moses is back on the mountain, and he's, you know, kind of, he's making intercession for the people, and God comes in, and he's basically like, listen, this is who I am. This is who I am, and this is repeated throughout scripture, but he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, right? God is loving, forgiving, peaceful, and yet he says, I, will, I cannot look away from sin. I cannot just overlook sin. And I think this is where the cross comes in, right? That is such a beautiful picture of where God's justice and love meet in Christ, right? That that God didn't just overlook my sin and your sin, right? His justice was completely poured out. His wrath for that was completely poured out on Christ so that, so that we could experience his love through that. That's a good point. Go ahead. You can move on to the next one if you want. Next one? Yeah. Look at that. We're good. We got that one done real That's quick. Good. All right, next question. Are women allowed to talk in church? Man, you guys are not letting this off easy. <laughs> Um, 1 Corinthians 14.34 is kind of the main passage this comes from. Kyle? Yeah, they, they elected me to be able to cover that one, so I'm very thankful I for know that. I know just say no. Yeah. <laughs> is that not what you, no? Is no. It, no? We can't move on? No. no we can't just, no. Apparently not. No. Um, but yeah, so if you guys want to turn to that passage, if you have, I, I think it's really important for us to really look at that and understand the full context of it. And it's very difficult when you read it at literal face value. But there is a lot of what we call hermeneutics that need to go into play in understanding exactly what we can say about this passage and what we can't say about this passage. Herman who? Yeah, hermeneutics. <laughs> hermeneutics. Yeah, yeah, good friend of mine. Um, but uh, so that's, that's K-N. Yeah. It's canudics. Yeah. Um, so uh, the first thing, as we look through this, I think we need to understand how this fits into the whole entire gospel narrative. Okay? And so... The first thing we need to understand is that the gospel empowers us to humble ourselves. Um, Mark already alluded to uh, the Philippians chapter 2 passage as far as uh, having a mind like Christ or an attitude like Christ. Um, But when we do that, we're also called in Ephesians 5.21 specifically to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what that does is that frees us from needing to seek out our significance in a position or some form of a role. And I think before we can even address this at all, we need to understand that, that there, we need to come into this understanding that it comes from a position of humility, not desiring for our identity to be sought through 
our role or our position in either our work environment, our family relationship, where we, how we reside in the organizational structure at our church or any other institution. All right, so with that said, one other thing, I think that it's also important for us to, to see that Galatians 3, 26 through 27, which if you read that and you interpret it as a straight up no answer, that would make it really difficult to understand that passage where it says that we are all one in Christ. There is no male or female. There is no, once again, no slave or free man. Okay? And then finally we see also with the attitude of Christ displayed through him washing the disciples' feet. And so uh, uh, Brad and I were playing some soccer, barefoot soccer, out in the backyard last night with a bunch of boys in the neighborhood. And we looked down at our feet after, what, about a few hours playing? And, and I just, it was just uncanny. It was perfect leading into this. Uh, and so it kind of added this in uh, just this morning. But the idea of, like, Brad just looked at his feet. He goes, can you imagine how disgusting it was for Christ to clean the apostles' feet? It wasn't like our feet, like, take off your shoes and your socks. I mean, this was like crusty, nasty, dirty, stinky feet. And as we were looking down at our feet, we're like, this is disgusting. This is gross. And so Christ brought himself to a point of su such humility, and that's the act that he was showing and trying to teach his disciples by doing that. All right, so in 1 Corinthians, just the, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's important for us to know that, that Paul is correcting problems within the church. Okay, so that's the whole entire book. It's addressing a church that has kind of gone rogue, and there are a lot of problems that, that Paul has to address. Specifically in 14, he's talking about people that are creating chaos within corporate worship and house church meetings. And that's the whole reason why Paul addresses not just women in this situation, but three different people groups. We see people speaking in tongues. We see people prophesying. And then we also see women creating disruptions by speaking out in a manner that is not humble. They're wanting to jump up and they want to speak because they have this newfound freedom newfound freedom within the first century church. Like never before, women are being honored and given positions and treated very differently than what they ever have been before in either the Roman or the Jewish societies. In general, what we can see of all those three people, all of these people were distracting others from being able to understand something extremely important and above all other things when it comes to these types of meetings. And that is as people receiving the gospel message. The truth of the gospel is being interfered with. People aren't able to listen and learn and hear it because there are so many distractions going on in the church. And so Paul commands each of these people to be silent. Basically, it's very strong. It's like, sorry for those parents who don't like this, but he's basically saying shut up because it's that important to him. The word of God, the gospel message is more important than any single people group in this situation. But what's beautiful about this is as you look at it, Paul also gives each one of these people an opportunity, a system or a, a venue or a structure, a method or a structure for their voice to be heard. So if you look at that, look, there's, there's an opportunity for the person who's speaking in tongues for their voice to be heard. There's an opportunity for the person prophesying for their voice to be heard. And there's an opportunity for these women that are speaking out in an unhumble manner to be heard. And what he does is Paul specifically appeals to the law in this particular passage, but then there's a companion passage because Paul, this isn't the first time 
uh, the only time that Paul is going to be talking about this. He also talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he appeals in this passage to the, to the law, and the other passage he refers to the, the law. You like how I did that? The fall on the law? Yeah. yeah. It must be true because I made it rhyme. <laughs> All right. So, um, so the law appeals to the protection of these women who have received new liberties in the church but are abusing them. It's, the law's purpose is protection. Uh, and I want us to understand that this is not a unique protection just in this situation that Paul is referring back to the moral law that was established. He's saying, hey, you've always, married women have always had the ability. I see the timer. Sorry, guys. Okay. <laughs> married women have always had the, the ability to have a protection through a <laughs> biblical household where the man is loving his wife and is seeking out strong biblical counsel. I think it's also important for us to understand that that doesn't mean that anybody doesn't have that same protection. Unmarried women, men, you, everybody has that protection through the church as well, through, through um, elders, in, in our situation, house church pastors, and, and Mark. Uh, and, it, and it also doesn't say that, um, that women cannot re provide counsel on the other end as well. We see that with uh, Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos. Right? A wife-husband team go to a man and kind of instruct him and say, hey, you're, you're speaking out, and this is, this is not the correct interpretation. The fall basically has more to do with the, the false interpretation part. So we get an idea that the women who are speaking out, they're not just being a distraction, but they're probably not interpreting Scripture properly. And that's a very important part for us to understand in this. And that's where in, uh, in 1 Timothy where Paul starts to break down who was deceived in the first place. Eve, Eve got it wrong. How did she get it wrong? She added to the teaching of God that God gave to Adam. That's heresy, by the way. When you add something to an interpretation that is not part of the interpretation or the command of God, that's heresy. Eve adds heresy by saying that not only can she not eat of it, but what does she say? She can't even touch it or she'll die. And what does Satan say? Oh, no, you surely won't die if you touch it. And I can just kind of imagine that if you put it in like a story or a narrative format, she probably reaches out and kind of touches it and goes, nothing happened. And the, the issue that, that, that Paul says here is, is that her husband was the one who received the command from God. She did not. And yet Adam's right next to her, and she never goes back and says, did I get that right? The, once again, the institution was there for protection of Eve, and Eve did not use it. And so that's what Paul is trying to do, is he's trying to help us see that, listen, there are protections that are created, and we see it both through the law and the fall. And I think that it's important for us to look at this scripture and this passage and understand that this is not saying that women can never speak or lead Bible studies within the church or any other venue. That is not what this passage is saying. It's saying for these, this, for these people who are speaking out in an unhumble manner, you need to stop, and here's your venue for being heard. And it's something that has been long established. Now, there are a lot, there's a lot more that we get to about that whole subject, but I think that's the primary thing that we need to understand, that the Bible provides all of us a protection for misinterpretation and pride through what... What, through biblical submission. And that's what's happening here. 
And he's not just protecting people. He's protecting the word of God, and that's far more important than any one person. Sorry, that was a sermon. Apologize. Amen. Yeah. Let me try to wrap it up on this, okay? Here's what we know. We know this. We know that a person's value is not determined by their position or their role, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we know. We know all throughout God's redemptive story that women had an incredible part to play in God's redemption. We know that from Genesis to Revelation. We know that women are included in the human ancestry of Jesus, right? We know that. We know that women in the first century church prayed. They led prayer meetings. They were key players in the mission of the church, sharing the gospel with people. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul mentions that women prayed. They prophesied. All right. Again, to Kyle, what he's saying is the problem is that they're creating a disruption in the church gathering that's keeping people from understanding the accurate truth of God's word. That's what was going on. And it wasn't just women, it was others that were doing the same thing. And so in the context, he says, those of you who are creating disruption that are keeping people from understanding the accurate truth of God's word, you all need to be quiet. And I've provided a structure for you in which you can make sure that the understanding of scripture that you're trying to communicate is correct. And I've provided that structure for you. Okay, for those who are married, you need to check with your husband to, make, to say, hey, is this what it means? And, and, and fellas, that's on us. <laughs> right? You need to be in the Word. You need to be in the Word. But for those who say, well, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. That's where you can go to the leadership of the church, and you could say, here, I'm studying this passage. What do you think? Is this an accurate understanding of the truth of God's word? And so God puts these protective layers because he wants to protect women. He wants to protect the truth of God's word, of his word. He wants to protect the purity of the church. And that's the context in which this is, this, this is um, being communicated. I just think it's kind of summarize what, Pyle, what, what Kyle is, is saying there. To, just think it's important to kind of wrap that up if you if we could. Next question. Last one. Last one. Also kind of in context with that, I, I, you don't see anybody else except for Paul, who's telling women in this case to be quiet. He, does, he honors them more than any other person in mm-hmm. all of Scripture, aside from, well, you could say Jesus. But as far as like the writers, the authors, people writing things, and you, he, gives, he gives Timothy's mother and grandmother praise for their good teaching. He gives Aquila and Priscilla good praise for their teaching. He tells Timothy to have the older women instruct the younger women. Like over and over again, Paul gives an outworking, a great outworking, and praise for the women who do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing. He likes it. Yep. Uh, next question. My coworker does not believe in a hell. She does believe that there is a good afterlife. How can I calmly tell her that there is a hell without seeming judgmental or harsh? I think um, our, our tendency here, anytime we have a, a friend or, or a coworker or whatever it is that, that believes differently than us, we have two, I think there's two different tendencies that we default towards. One is to just mealy mouth, oh, okay, that's fine, whatever you believe is fine. Or the other direction, our tendency is to come down hard with the word of God and, and stop it right there, right? And I think, I think we default to the, those two extremes. But I think the, the truth is in the middle, and it all starts with how we care about that person. And I think first and foremost, we've got to love you know, this woman, um, like really love her, pray for her, spend time um, thinking about her and how how um, the gospel can apply to her life, and I think we have to make sure that she knows that as well before we do any answering about whether there's a hell or not. We've got to come to a place where we 
um, that she knows we established that relationship and she knows that we care about her above, above everything. Um, and then I think too, it's important that we, um, we help her it, after, after that, once we have a relationship established, once we, she is confident in that we care about her, then we can begin to um, compare and, and establish biblical principles versus what it is that she believes. And in this case, believing in an afterlife and not hell um, I think is a very common thing in our culture today. And, and, but it's not based on, there's, there's no book that those people can go to and say, well, this is established by you know, this authority that says that there's an afterlife that's good and there is no hell. Um, they, they ha there is no foundation beneath that belief. Um, and so I think bringing biblical truth to that conversation and being able to help her see that, but it all has to be predicated by her knowing that we love her, but I'll let you guys answer yeah. some more of that. Uh, what was the, kind of, you had a line earlier when we were talking about this about oh, yeah. where it comes out of the motivation. Yeah, so the motivation in this question is it's, it's pretty easy to see that it's not a con there's not a consistent flow of thought through it, right? It, it, like the assumption is almost that, well, good people go to heaven, bad people, bad people. It, it just kind of stops there. Um, it, it's, it's almost as if like the good works create a soul and then you're in heaven and then if you don't do good works then, then you don't have a soul or, or like the, the, the assumption behind the question is not consistent at all so this lady has not really thought through her, her beliefs so much as she's felt through them and which is why it's so important that you have to start with love because if you start with thought she's, you're already way ahead of where she's even engaging you have to start with, with love you have to say okay I understand this is how you feel i I this scares me too, to be completely honest. I don't like hell. I don't. Right? But that doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> because I'm such a steps person, I, I wrote it out like the responses and like, let's create a form that you would be able to address any type of situation. Okay? So I had established the relationship and one of the ways you can do that, um, void of what we were talking about, this this love and this in this specific situation, I think what you need to do is we're talking about two different types of worldview, right? We're coming from a biblical worldview, and they're coming from whatever worldview they might have. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to find something in which we can agree upon. We need to find some way we can validate that person. And there is a goodness in that person's heart because what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to see the goodness of, of all of mankind, right? And we believe that God has bore his image on all of us, and so we can agree with that. We can also agree that there is a good afterlife. We can agree to that. We can say that people will be going to, to a good afterlife. And then I think we have to start asking questions to know how far we can go. So the next step is asking for an opportunity to share the full biblical worldview. And that, once again, means we need to go back and we need to prepare ourselves in fully understanding that. But then we can start talking about how, well, the Bible, or Jesus says this. He says that, that eternity is going to be exactly what we desire. It's either going to be eternal communion with God or eternal separation. And it's a decision that we make. And Christ is what offers us the capability of doing that. And it's, it, it can be that simple or it can be a little bit more of a process depending on what that person needs to understand. And then the, the third thing is, is that once they understand the worldview, you have to give them the opportunity to kind of talk through and figure out what part of this worldview do you oppose? Why? 
why can't you believe what is stated in Scripture? And start understanding the heart. And I think it goes back to this whole thing of the God of love and the God of justice that Hardy talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, just specifically in speaking about hell, I just seem to keep seeing this over and over. Even, like, I, I, know, I have pastor friends that have had to deal with a, a, an individual that they are in close relationship with who does not know Jesus dying. And the, the, where, where our theology meets real life, and it gets really hard, especially when it comes to hell. And I think that, that I, I mean, I, I have pastor friends that have, have had a good close friend die and go to hell. And it, it has caused them to backpedal on this because the thought of their mother or their brother or their close friend experiencing the wrath of God for eternity is too much. And we probably some of us in here that can relate to that. It is it's a really really difficult thing to to apply practically to our lives. And I think I think that's where we see. Uh, and and so even in this case, it, I think it would be good to dig a little bit on a personal level and find out like why why is hell such a difficult thing for you to to grasp and it, and then not like not whitewash that with oh it's no big deal. I mean it's a big deal. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would say is that. The, I, I think it's also important for us to always see these opportunities as opportunities to bring people in and share and invite. And so it, even if it's something as simple as, I'd like to read a book about this with you. Would you be willing to do that? Can we do a book study? Can we meet regularly about this? I'd like to read the book. Let's go through the Bible and, and learn about, here are a couple passages that talk about heaven and hell. Let's compare and contrast. How, what do we think that this is trying to to say, because the Bible will defend itself. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the other thing is, is that bring someone in community. If it's more relationship that they need, then, then say, hey, you know what, I have a group. I wouldn't say a house church, especially in this situation, because this person's probably not coming from a, from a perspective where they're going to understand that they're going to cult, 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 beware, right? <laughs> so maybe what you say is, hey, I got a group of friends that we meet together, and we talk about difficult stuff like this all the time. And you'd be great. Since you're asking this question, since you're willing to go this route with me, I think you'd love to be a part of that group. On this, too, when I look at the question, how can I calmly tell her, take the pressure off yourself. Get her to Jesus. Get her to Jesus. And by that, I mean, hey, would you be at all open to hearing what Jesus has to say about the afterlife? At all? Yeah, I'd be kind of, all right, well, you know what? Would you be cool if we just kind of took a time, maybe once every couple of weeks, and sat down and looked at what he actually had to say about his idea of the afterlife? You know, kind of take the pressure off yourself a little bit. Kind of put it back on him. I mean, he's the one who created it, right? I mean, put it back on him. All right, he can handle it. And, and so if, if I, would, I would go that route in the sense of just, again, bringing this individual back to Jesus and getting them in the word. Get, let, the, let the word of God, through the spirit of God, through the son of God, do the work of God. Bring it, all right? I mean, that's, that's what he can do, and he will do it. And so I would just, on that, I would just really encourage us, with, and not just in this case, but with anyone, anyone that you're talking to that has questions about religion or spirituality or whatever, bring them back to Christ. You follow Christ. Here's what he has to say about it. Bring them back to that. We need to move on. Yeah, I think it's a super biblical response, though. You see Paul do that. He says, not with words of wisdom that I have brought you to this mm -hmm. understanding. Because then it's only as good as the next argument that's more savvy than you. 
right? You're, you're taking them to the gospel through Jesus for him to convict their hearts and change their lives. Uh, continuing on. Next question. Of the men sitting up in front answering these questions, who would win a WWF-style Royal Rumble? <laughs> Throw others out of the ring. Last man standing wins. And we got to end. It's so heavy, right? We got to end on something that's a little light. Yeah, who do you, I, I agree. I think Jeremy would win. He's like a horseman, so he's like an, I actually asked one of my boys this this week, and they're like Jeremy would because he's like a rodeo guy, and like he would like like treat you all like cattle. See, the, the is what he would do. Pride in me wants to say that's not true, but I think that Jeremy can take me. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. so your zeal is unbelievable, though. So you're totally leaving Kyle and I out of it. I was gonna say Kyle's pretty wiry. Yeah. yeah. I would lose. I'm just gonna like. I'll just. Conv- I'll admit. Right. I'm out there. I'm just done. Right I'd be there. running around the corners. If anyone caught me, I'd be in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be crawling out of the cage. Get me Mark, out of here. No, Mark would try to talk us all down. <laughs> He'd be like, no, this is not the way we're supposed to settle right. conflict. Yes. Can't we yes. all win? That's right. That's right. Listen, why are we doing this this morning? Okay, we don't have time. One more. Okay. Why, why do we take time to do this? Here's why. First Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. All right, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. That's why we take time this morning to talk through these questions. It's to equip us as the church to do the work of the ministry as we live the mission, proclaiming, I got goosebumps right now, proclaiming the amazing, glorious goodness of Jesus to a culture that is in desperate need of him. That's why we do this. If you want more, we have a, a resource page handout on the back at the information table uh, as it relates to each one of the questions we've talked about, all those different things, take that with you. But again, our hope this morning is that you take some of the things that we've talked through as it relates to scripture and we leave understanding that the true solution to the true answer is the gospel of Jesus. All right, and that we live out that gospel together to a world that is desperate for the church to live and proclaim the good news of Jesus. So let's stand, and, and we want to pray and sing one last song as it relates to our great God. God, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for its goodness. I thank you that it, its application to our hearts changes everything. It changes how we see Life. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see other people. It, it, it gives us boldness and courage in, in living out the mission that you've called us to. God, you are so good. And I pray that as we walk away from this morning, Lord, tackling some very difficult yet very real and honest questions, Lord, that we would walk away knowing that you have given us all we need for life and godliness. All we need for life and godliness through the Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word. And God, may we become completely enamored with you, overwhelmed with you as we take this truth and live it out this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.